Chapter Two of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter Two. After his breakfast the following Monday morning, McTeague looked over the appointments he had written down in the book slate that hung against the screen. His writing was immense, very clumsy, and very round, with huge, full-bellied L's and H's. He saw that he had made an appointment at one o'clock for Miss Baker, the retired dressmaker, a little old maid who had a tiny room a few doors down the hall. It adjoined that of old Grannis. Quite an affair had arisen from this circumstance. Miss Baker and old Grannis were both over sixty, and yet it was current talk amongst the lodgers of the flat that the two were in love with each other. Singularly enough, they were not even acquaintances. Never a word had passed between them. At intervals they met on the stairway. He on his way to his little dog hospital, she returning from a bit of marketing in the street. At such times they passed each other with averted eyes, pretending a certain preoccupation, suddenly seized with a great embarrassment, the timidity of a second childhood. He went on about his business, disturbed and thoughtful. She hurried up to her tiny room, her curious little false curls shaking with her agitation, the faintest suggestion of a flush coming and going in her withered cheeks. The emotion of one of these chance meetings remained with them during all the rest of the day. Was it the first romance in the lives of each? Did old Grannis ever remember a certain face amongst those that he had known when he was young Grannis? The face of some pale-haired girl, such as one sees in the old cathedral towns of England? Did Miss Baker still treasure up in a seldom opened drawer or box some faded daguerreotype, some strange old-fashioned likeness with its curling hair and high stock? It was impossible to say. Maria Macapa, the Mexican woman who took care of the lodger's rooms, had been the first to call the flat's attention to the affair, spreading the news of it from room to room, from floor to floor. Of late she had made a great discovery. All the women folk of the flat were yet vibrant with it. Old Grannis came home from his work at four o'clock, and between that time and six Miss Baker would sit in her room, her hands idle in her lap, doing nothing, listening, waiting. Old Grannis did the same, drawing his armchair near to the wall, knowing that Miss Baker was upon the other side, conscious, perhaps, that she was thinking of him. And there the two would sit through the hours of the afternoon, listening and waiting. They did not know exactly for what, but near to each other, separated only by the thin partition of their rooms. They had come to know each other's habits. Old Grannis knew that at quarter of five precisely, Miss Baker made a cup of tea over the oil stove on the stand between the bureau and the window. Miss Baker felt instinctively the exact moment when old Grannis took down his little binding apparatus from the second shelf of his clothes closet and began his favorite occupation of binding pamphlets, pamphlets that he never read, for all that. In his parlors, McTeague began his week's work. He glanced in the glass saucer in which he kept his sponge gold, and noticing that he had used up all his pellets, set about making some more. In examining Miss Baker's teeth at the preliminary sitting, he had found a cavity in one of the incisors. Miss Baker had decided to have it filled with gold. McTeague remembered now that it was what is called a proximate case, where there is not sufficient room to fill with large pieces of gold. He told himself that he should have to use mats in the filling. He made some dozen of these mats from his tape of non-cohesive gold, cutting it transversely into small pieces that could be inserted edgewise between the teeth and consolidated by packing. After he had made his mats, he continued with the other kind of gold fillings, such as he would have occasion to use during the week blocks to be used in large proximal cavities, made by folding the tape on itself a number of times and then shaping it with the soldering pliers, cylinders for commencing fillings, 
which he formed by rolling the tape around a needle called a brooch, cutting it afterwards into different lengths. He worked slowly, mechanically, turning the foil between his fingers with the manual dexterity that one sometimes sees in stupid persons. His head was quite empty of all thought, and he did not whistle over his work as another man might have done. The canary made up for his silence, trilling and chittering continually, splashing about in its morning bath, keeping up an incessant noise and movement that would have been maddening to anyone but McTeague, who seemed to have no nerves at all. After he had finished his fillings, he made a hook brooch from a bit of piano wire to replace an old one that he had lost. It was time for his dinner then, and when he returned from the car conductor's coffee joint, he found Miss Baker waiting for him. The ancient little dressmaker was at all times willing to talk of old Grannis to anybody that would listen, quite unconscious of the gossip of the flat. McTeague found her all aflutter with excitement. Something extraordinary had happened. She had found out that the wallpaper in old Grannis's room was the same as that in hers. "'It has led me to thinking, Dr. McTeague,' she exclaimed, shaking her little false curls at him. "'You know my room is so small, anyhow, and the wallpaper being the same.' The pattern from my room continues right into his, I declare. I believe at one time that was all one room. Think of it, do you suppose it was? It almost amounts to our occupying the same room. I don't know. Why, really? Do you think I should speak to the landlady about it? He bound pamphlets last night until half-past nine. They say that he's the younger son of a baronet, that there are reasons for his not coming to the title. His stepfather wronged him cruelly. No one had ever said such a thing. It was preposterous to imagine any mystery connected with old Grannis. Miss Baker had chosen to invent the little fiction, had created the title and the unjust stepfather from some dim memories of the novels of her girlhood. She took her place in the operating chair. McTeague began the filling. There was a long silence. It was impossible for McTeague to work and talk at the same time. He was just burnishing the last mat in Miss Baker's tooth when the door of the parlors opened, jangling the bell which he had hung over it, and which was absolutely unnecessary. McTeague turned, one foot on the pedal of his dental engine, the corundum disc whirling between his fingers. It was Marcus Schuller who came in, ushering a young girl of about twenty. "'Hello, Mac,' exclaimed Marcus. "'Busy? Brought my cousin round about that broken tooth.' McTeague nodded his head gravely. "'In a minute,' he answered. Marcus and his cousin Trina sat down in the rigid chairs underneath the steel engraving of the court of Lorenzo de' Medici, they began talking in low tones. The girl looked about the room, noticing the stone pug dog, the rifle manufacturer's calendar, the canary in its little gilt prison, and the tumbled blankets on the unmade bed lounge against the wall. Marcus began telling her about McTeague. We're pals, he explained, just above a whisper. Ah, Mac's all right, you bet. Say, Trina, he's the strongest duck you ever saw. What do you suppose? He can pull out your teeth with his fingers. Yes, he can. What do you think of that? With his fingers, mind you. He can, for a fact. Get on to the size of him, anyhow. Ah, Mac's all right. Maria Macapa had come into the room while he had been speaking. She was making up McTeague's bed. Suddenly Marcus exclaimed under his breath, Now we'll have some fun. It's the girl that takes care of the rooms. She's a greaser, and she's queer in the head. She ain't regularly crazy, but I don't know. She's queer. You ought to hear her go on about a gold dinner service she says her folks used to own. Ask her what her name is and see what she'll say. Trina shrank back, a little frightened. "'No, you ask,' she whispered. "'Ah, go on. What you afraid of?' urged Marcus. Trina shook her head energetically, shutting her lips together. "'Well, listen here,' answered Marcus, nudging her, then raising his voice. He said, "'How do, Maria?' Maria nodded to him over her shoulder as she bent over the lounge. "'Working hard nowadays, Maria?' "'Pretty hard.' 
Didn't always have to work for your living, though, did you, when you ate off of gold dishes? Maria didn't answer, except by putting her chin in the air and shutting her eyes, as though to say she knew a long story about that if she had a mind to talk. All Marcus's efforts to draw her out on the subject were unavailing. She only responded by movements of her head. "'Can't always start her going,' Marcus told his cousin. "'What does she do, though, when you ask her about her name?' "'Oh, sure,' said Marcus, who had forgotten. "'Say, Maria, what's your name?' "'Huh?' asked Maria, straightening up, her hands on her hips. "'Tell us your name,' repeated Marcus. "'Name is Maria, Miranda, Macapa. Then, after a pause, she added, as though she had but that moment thought of it, had a flying squirrel and let him go. Invariably, Maria Macapa made this answer. It was not always she would talk about the famous service of gold plate, but a question as to her name never failed to elicit the same strange answer, delivered in a rapid undertone. Name is Maria Miranda Macapa. Then, as if struck with an afterthought, had a flying squirrel and let him go. Why Maria should associate the release of the mythical squirrel with her name could not be said. About Maria, the flat knew absolutely nothing further than that she was Spanish-American. Miss Baker was the oldest lodger in the flat, and Maria was a fixture there, as made of all work when she had come. There was a legend to the effect that Maria's people had been at one time immensely wealthy in Central America. Maria turned again to her work. Trina and Marcus watched her curiously. There was a silence. The corundum burr in McTeague's engine hummed in a prolonged monotone. The canary bird chittered occasionally. The room was warm and the breathing of the five people in the narrow space made the air close and thick. At long intervals, an acrid odor of ink floated up from the branch post office immediately below. Maria Macapa finished her work and started to leave. As she passed near Marcus and his cousin, she stopped and drew a bunch of blue tickets furtively from her pocket. "'Buy a ticket in the lottery?' she inquired, looking at the girl. "'Just a dollar.' "'Go along with you, Maria,' said Marcus, who had but thirty cents in his pocket. "'Go along. It's against the law.' "'Buy a ticket,' urged Maria, thrusting the bundle toward Trina. "'Try your luck. The butcher on the next block won twenty dollars the last drawing.' Very uneasy, Trina bought a ticket for the sake of being rid of her. Maria disappeared. "'Ain't she a queer bird?' muttered Marcus. He was much embarrassed and disturbed, because he had not bought the ticket for Trina. But there was a sudden movement. McTeague had just finished with Miss Baker. "'You should notice,' the dressmaker said to the dentist in a low voice. He always leaves the door a little ajar in the afternoon. When she had gone out, Marcus Scholler brought Trina forward. Say, Mac, this is my cousin, Trina Sipa. The two shook hands dumbly, McTeague slowly nodding his huge head with its great shock of yellow hair. Trina was very small and prettily made. Her face was round and rather pale, her eyes long and narrow and blue, like the half-open eyes of a little baby. Her lips and the lobes of her tiny ears were pale, a little suggestive of anemia, while across the bridge of her nose ran an adorable little line of freckles. But it was to her hair that one's attention was most attracted. Heaps and heaps of blue-black coils and braids, a royal crown of swarthy bands, a veritable sable tiara, heavy, abundant, odorous. All the vitality that should have given color to her face seemed to have been absorbed by this marvelous hair. It was the coiffure of a queen that shadowed the pale temples of this little bourgeois. So heavy was it that it tipped her head backward, and the position thrust her chin out a little. It was a charming poise, innocent, confiding, almost infantile. She was dressed all in black, very modest and plain. The effect of her pale face in all this contrasting black was almost monastic. "'Well,' exclaimed Marcus suddenly, 
I got to go. Must get back to work. Don't hurt her too much, Mac. So long, Trina. McTeague and Trina were left alone. He was embarrassed, troubled. These young girls disturbed and perplexed him. He did not like them, obstinately cherishing that intuitive suspicion of all things feminine, the perverse dislike of an overgrown boy. On the other hand, she was perfectly at her ease. Doubtless the woman in her was not yet awakened. She was yet, as one might say, without sex. She was almost like a boy, frank, candid, unreserved. She took her place in the operating chair and told him what was the matter, looking squarely into his face. She had fallen out of a swing the afternoon of the preceding day. One of her teeth had been knocked loose and the other altogether broken out. McTeague listened to her with apparent stolidity, nodding his head from time to time as she spoke. The keenness of his dislike of her as a woman began to be blunted. He thought she was rather pretty, that he even liked her because she was so small, so prettily made, so good-natured and straightforward. "'Let's have a look at your teeth,' he said, picking up his mirror. "'You better take your hat off.' She leaned back in her chair and opened her mouth, showing the rows of little round teeth, as white and even as the kernels on an ear of green corn, except where an ugly gap came at the side. McTeague put the mirror into her mouth, touching one and another of her teeth with the handle of an excavator. By and by he straightened up, wiping the moisture from the mirror on his coat sleeve. "'Well, doctor,' said the girl, anxiously, "'it's a dreadful disfigurement, isn't it?' Adding, "'What can you do about it?' "'Well,' answered McTeague, slowly, looking vaguely about on the floor of the room, "'the roots of the broken tooth are still in the gum. They'll have to come out, and I guess I'll have to pull that other bicuspid. Let me look again.' "'Yes,' he went on in a moment, peering into her mouth with the mirror. "'I guess that'll have to come out, too.' The tooth was loose, discolored, and evidently dead. "'It's a curious case,' McTeague went on. "'I don't know as I ever had a tooth like that before. "'It's what's called necrosis. "'It don't often happen. "'It'll have to come out, sure.' Then a discussion was opened on the subject, Trina sitting up in the chair, holding her hat in her lap, McTeague leaning against the window frame, his hands in his pockets, his eyes wandering about on the floor. Trina did not want the other tooth removed. One hole like that was bad enough.' But two, ah, no, it was not to be thought of. But McTeague reasoned with her, tried in vain to make her understand that there was no vascular connection between the root and the gum. Trina was blindly persistent, with the persistency of a girl who has made up her mind. McTeague began to like her better and better, and after a while convinced himself to feel that it would be a pity to disfigure such a pretty mouth. He became interested. Perhaps he could do something, something in the way of a crown or bridge, "'Let's look at that again,' he said, picking up his mirror. He began to study the situation very carefully, really desiring to remedy the blemish. It was the first bicuspid that was missing, and though part of the root of the second, the loose one, would remain after its extraction, he was sure it would not be strong enough to sustain a crown. All at once he grew obstinate, resolving, with all the strength of a crude and primitive man, to conquer the difficulty in spite of everything. He turned over in his mind the technicalities of the case. "'No,' Evidently, the root was not strong enough to sustain a crown. Besides that, it was placed a little irregularly in the arch. But fortunately, there were cavities in the two teeth on either side of the gap, one in the first molar and one in the palatine surface of the cuspid. Might he not drill a socket in the remaining root and sockets in the molar and cuspid, and partly by bridging, partly by crowning, fill in the gap? He made up his mind to do it. Why he should pledge himself to this hazardous case, McTeague was puzzled to know. With most of his clients, he would have contented himself with the extraction of the loose tooth and the roots of the broken one. 
Why should he risk his reputation in this case? He could not say why. It was the most difficult operation he had ever performed. He bungled it considerably, but in the end he succeeded passably well. He extracted the loose tooth with his bayonet forceps and prepared the roots of the broken one as if for filling, fitting into them a flattened piece of platinum wire to serve as a dowel. But this was only the beginning. Altogether it was a fortnight's work. Trina came nearly every other day and passed two and even three hours in the chair. By degrees McTeague's first awkwardness and suspicion vanished entirely. The two became good friends. McTeague even arrived at that point where he could work and talk to her at the same time, a thing that had never before been possible for him. Never until then had McTeague become so well acquainted with a girl of Trina's age. The younger women of Polk Street, the shop girls, the young women of the soda fountains, the waitresses in the cheap restaurants, preferred another dentist, a young fellow just graduated from the college, a poser, a rider of bicycles, a man about town, who wore astonishing waistcoats and bet money on greyhound coursing. Trina was McTeague's first experience. With her, the feminine element suddenly entered his little world. It was not only her that he saw and felt. It was the woman, the whole sex, an entire new humanity, strange and alluring, that he seemed to have discovered. How had he ignored it so long? It was dazzling, delicious, charming beyond all words. His narrow point of view was at once enlarged and confused, and all at once he saw that there was something else in life besides concertinas and steam beer. Everything had to be made over again. His whole rude idea of life had to be changed. The male virile desire in him tardily awakened, aroused itself, strong and brutal. It was resistless, untrained, a thing not to be held in leash an instant. Little by little, by gradual, almost imperceptible degrees, the thought of Trina Sipa occupied his mind from day to day, from hour to hour. He found himself thinking of her constantly. At every instant he saw her round, pale face, her narrow, milk-blue eyes, her little, outthrust chin, her heavy, huge tiara of black hair. At night he lay awake for hours under the thick blankets of the bed lounge, staring upward into the darkness, tormented with the idea of her, exasperated at the delicate, subtle mesh in which he found himself entangled. During the forenoons, while he went about his work, he thought of her. As he made his plaster of Paris molds at the washstand in the corner behind the screen, he turned over in his mind all that had happened, all that had been said at the previous sitting. Her little tooth that he had extracted he kept wrapped in a bit of newspaper in his vest pocket. Often he took it out and held it in the palm of his immense, horny hand, seized with some strange elephantine sentiment, whacking his head at it, heaving tremendous sighs. What a folly! At two o'clock on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, Trina arrived and took her place in the operating chair. While at his work, McTeague was every minute obliged to bend closely over her. His hands touched her face, her cheeks, her adorable little chin, her lips pressed against his fingers. She breathed warmly on his forehead and on his eyelids, while the odor of her hair, a charming feminine perfume, sweet, heavy, enervating, came to his nostrils, so penetrating, so delicious, that his flesh pricked and tingled with it. A veritable sensation of faintness passed over this huge, callous fellow, with his enormous bones and corded muscles. He drew a short breath through his nose, his jaw suddenly gripped together, vice-like. But this was only at times, a strange, vexing spasm that subsided almost immediately. For the most part, McTeague enjoyed the pleasure of these sittings with Trina, with a certain strong calmness, blindly happy that she was there. This poor crude dentist of Polk Street, stupid, ignorant, vulgar, with his sham education and plebeian tastes, 
whose only relaxations were to eat, to drink steam beer, and to play upon his concertina, was living through his first romance, his first idol. It was delightful. The long hours he passed alone with Trina in the dental parlors, silent, only for the scraping of the instruments and the pouring of budburs in the engine, in the foul atmosphere, overheated by the little stove and heavy with the smell of ether, creosote, and stale bedding, had all the charm of secret appointments and stolen meetings under the moon. By degrees the operation progressed. One day, just after McTeague had put in the temporary gutta-percha fillings, and nothing more could be done at that sitting, Trina asked him to examine the rest of her teeth. They were perfect, with one exception, a spot of white caries on the lateral surface of an incisor. McTeague filled it with gold, enlarging the cavity with hard bits and hoe excavators, and burring in afterward with half-cone burrs. The cavity was deep, and Trina began to wince and moan. To hurt Trina was a positive anguish for McTeague, yet an anguish which he was obliged to endure at every hour of the sitting. It was harrowing. He sweated under it. To be forced to torture her, of all women in the world, could anything be worse than that? Hurt? he inquired, anxiously. She answered by frowning, with a sharp intake of breath, putting her fingers over her closed lips and nodding her head. McTeague sprayed the tooth with glycerite of tannin, but without effect. Rather than hurt her, he found himself forced to the use of anesthesia, which he hated. He had a notion that the nitrous oxide gas was dangerous, so on this occasion, as on all others, used ether. He put the sponge a half-dozen times to Trina's face, more nervous than he had ever been before, watching the symptoms closely. Her breathing became short and irregular. There was a slight twitching of the muscles. When her thumbs turned inward toward the palms, he took the sponge away. She passed off very quickly, and, with a long sigh, sank back into the chair. McTeague straightened up, putting the sponge upon the rack behind him, his eyes fixed upon Trina's face. For some time he stood watching her as she lay there, unconscious and helpless, and very pretty. He was alone with her, and she was absolutely without defense. Suddenly the animal in the man stirred and awoke. The evil instincts that in him were so close to the surface leaped to life, shouting and clamoring. It was a crisis, a crisis that had arisen all in an instant, a crisis for which he was totally unprepared. Blindly and without knowing why, McTeague fought against it, moved by an unreasoned instinct of resistance. Within him, a certain second self, another better McTeague rose with the brute. Both were strong, with the huge crude strength of the man himself. The two were at grapples. There, in that cheap and shabby dental parlor, a dreaded struggle began. It was the old battle, old as the world, wide as the world, the sudden panther leap of the animal, lips drawn, fangs aflash, hideous, monstrous, not to be resisted, and the simultaneous arousing of the other man, the better self that cries, down, down, without knowing why, that grips the monster, that fights to strangle it, to thrust it down and back. Dizzied and bewildered with the shock, the like of which he had never known before, McTeague turned from Trina, gazing bewilderedly, about the room. The struggle was bitter. His teeth ground themselves together with a little rasping sound. The blood sang in his ears. His face flushed scarlet. His hands twisted themselves together like the knotting of cables. The fury in him was as the fury of a young bull in the heat of high summer. But for all that he shook his huge head from time to time, muttering, No, by God! No, by God! Dimly he seemed to realize that should he yield now, he would never be able to care for Trina again. She would never be the same to him, never so radiant, so sweet, so adorable. Her charm for him would vanish in an instant. Across her forehead, her little pale forehead, 
under the shadow of her royal hair, he would surely see the smudge of a foul orger, the footprint of the monster. It would be a sacrilege, an abomination. He recoiled from it, banding all his strength to the issue. No, by God! No, by God! He turned to his work, as if seeking a refuge in it. But as he drew near to her again, the charm of her innocence and helplessness came over him afresh. It was a final protest against his resolution. Suddenly he leaned over and kissed her, grossly, full on the mouth. The thing was done before he knew it. Terrified at his weakness, at the very moment he believed himself strong, he threw himself once more into his work with desperate energy. By the time he was fastening the sheet of rubber upon the tooth, he had himself once more in hand. He was disturbed, still trembling, still vibrating with the throes of the crisis. But he was the master. The animal was downed, was cowed for this time at least. But for all that, the brute was there. Long dormant, it was now at last alive, awake. From now on he would feel its presence continually, would feel it tugging at its chain, watching its opportunity. Ah, the pity of it. Why could he not always love her purely, cleanly? What was this perverse, vicious thing that lived within him, knitted to his flesh? Below the fine fabric of all that was good in him ran the foul stream of hereditary evil. Like a sewer. The vices and sins of his father and of his father's father, to the third and fourth and five hundredth generation, tainted him. The evil of an entire race flowed in his veins. Why should it be? He did not desire it. Was he to blame? But McTeague could not understand this thing. It had faced him, as sooner or later it faces every child of man. But its significance was not for him. To reason with it was beyond him. He could only oppose to it an instinctive stubborn resistance, blind, inert. McTeague went on with his work. As he was wrapping in the little blocks and cylinders with the mallet, Trina slowly came back to herself with a long sigh. She still felt a little confused, and lay quiet in the chair. There was a long silence, broken only by the uneven tapping of the hardwood mallet. By and by, she said, I never felt a thing. And then she smiled at him very prettily beneath the rubber dam. McTeague turned to her suddenly, his mallet in one hand, his pliers holding a pellet of sponge gold in the other. All at once, he said, with the unreasoned simplicity and directness of a child, Listen here, Miss Trina. I like you better than anyone else. What's the matter with us getting married? Trina sat up in the chair quickly, and then drew back from him, frightened and bewildered. Will you? Will you? said McTeague. Say, Miss Trina, will you? What is it? What do you mean? she cried, confusedly, her words muffled beneath the rubber. Will you? repeated McTeague. No, no, she exclaimed, refusing without knowing why, suddenly seized with the fear of him the intuitive feminine fear of the male. McTeague could only repeat the same thing over and over again. Trina, more and more frightened at his huge hands, the hands of the old-time carboy, his immense square-cut head, and his enormous brute strength, cried out, No, no, behind the rubber dam, shaking her head violently, holding out her hands and shrinking down before him in the operating chair. McTeague came nearer to her, repeating the same question. No, no, she cried, terrified. Then, as she exclaimed, Oh, I am sick, was suddenly taken with a fit of vomiting. It was not the unusual after-effect of the ether, aided now by her excitement and nervousness. McTeague was checked. He poured some bromide of potassium into a graduated glass and held it to her lips. Here, swallow this, he said. End of chapter 2